So in any nine, t- in anything that's oh, times yeah, yeah. by nine, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, all, the combined yeah, yeah, digits yeah, yeah, add up to yeah, nine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you can keep adding them up, and then they eventually add up to three. Is that also one? <laughs> once you get, once you, well, that's if you get to three. I can tell you just how furious it, I am about Scottish, this conversation. Scottish right schools don't get past two digits. So anyway, yeah, because you add them all up to nine, and then it's like the trick is like, it, this is with the single digit. This is this is a film podcast, by the way. That um, nine times nine is eighty-one because the digits add up to thing, and it's like the first number. Mm. Is one less than what you're multiplying? Do, by. do I know? Yeah, I can do it. Watch this. This is only work for a radio, but one <laughs> times one d- times nine now is d- nine. Two times nine is one and eight. eight. So you can do your fingers if you want to be like really you cover basic. up the oh, finger. Like twenty-seven. Yeah. Thirty-six. Oh, I just did the maths. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome back to the Sydney Skinny. We're now I doing my mental fingers. arithmetic <laughs> using hand gestures. <laughs> That's audio. <laughs> Yes, welcome back to the first Cine Skinny of 2024. The format has taken a dramatic nosedive <laughs> into what can only be described as educational content. None of us are happy about it. Yes, welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. It's Peter, Jamie, Ellie, and Anahi all back at EHFM. Everyone say hello. Hi. Hello. Good job. Uh, yeah, back at EHFM. First time in the new year to talk about two of the hottest, most anticipated, best, goodest, most good two of the most high films of early 2024 poor things and all of us strangers and to also based on those two films both being to one extent or another adapted from books to talk a bit about other films that are also to one extent or another adapted from books it's a film podcast (laughs) you you get the get the premise we'll talk about the films it'll be a good time but before we get into all of that Thanks to everyone who came to the latest round of Cine Skinny Film Club screenings we did with Mubi this past week. I hired a contract killer, Aki Karazmaki. We are recording before the first one happens, so I'm going to have to assume that they went well. What Jamie, if they didn't? Jamie, you were at both what of them. What if I died? What if, what, if, what if they turned on me like a pack of animals and ripped me from pieces? This is going to this is going to be. You'll get cancelled, Peter. What I will say, Jamie, and this is a promise that I am happy to stick to: if you are killed at one of the screenings. I won't put out this episode. <laughs> out of respect, thank you. It's really the least I could do. <laughs> Prayers to his family. <laughs> out of respect for Jamie, RIP. But just one episode. We certainly, we certainly <laughs> cut, yeah. And, no, we'll be over it. Yeah, and, yeah, in the event of Jamie's untimely demise, we are probably looking for a fourth chair on this episode. <laughs> skinny at theskinny.co.uk. That's skinny at theskinny.co.uk. Um, so yeah, there'll be more of those Saints Game Film Club show, uh, screenings along shortly once we firm up some details such as the date and which films we're showing. But that'll all be along in the fullness of time. But before we do any of the stuff that I pre-mentioned, or mentioned as they call it in the trade, because we've been off on our Christmas break, everyone's going to talk about the best thing they watched over the Christmas holidays very briefly so that we don't use up too much of the studio's time or your time when you're listening. I'm really selling this bit. I'm doing a great job. Who wants to go first? Ellie, I'm looking straight at you. you, did, you, just, you I'm also like, looming over you because of the, the kind of <laughs> we're chair on dynamic. uneven chairs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I saw the Boy and the Heron, which I think is still in cinemas now. You could probably still go see it. Really, really enjoyed it uh, at the GFT. It did take me a little while to kind of connect with it. I think because it is just like really ticking off the Miyazaki tropes to begin with. Like you've got the comedic old grannies, you've got the adorable elemental spirit creatures. You've got the bisexual wizards, the post-World War II trauma. <laughs> but 
I think that, yeah, as I was saying earlier, I'm like excited to rewatch it, mainly because I saw the subtitled version and now I want to see the dubbed version because I've, I've heard really good things about Rob Pattinson's Yeah, me too. Heron. Yeah, the whole cast apparently. I mean, th- that's the thing about Miyazaki films is that their dub casts are always like heavy hitters. Yeah. These in the 90s were like Keith David and stuff like that. So Billy Crystal was in Howl's Moving Castle. So really like interesting vocal work, uh, which I want to check out. And also I do just think that like, even though it does sort of play in the same spaces that Miyazaki films have previously, like all Miyazaki films are really, really watchable. They're like all really, really entertaining. And I can see some people like sort of taking up this one as much as they would take up any of the classics, your Kiki's, Totoro's, et al. And he was really angry because I only gave it three and a half stars on Letterboxd. Yeah. I do feel bad about that because I, I I appreciate and love Miyazaki so much. Um, and I think maybe it'd be good we should do like a Studio Ghibli episode or something. That'd be really nice. Because yeah. I think, because uh, we didn't get a chance to speak with this and I, I think, uh, yeah, we could dig into his other stuff. Why do you feel bad about giving a film seven out of ten? It's just... <laughs> not, yeah, no, I'm not, I, I didn't feel it's bad. It's not that. It's not seven out of ten is bad. It's bad for that film because that is not a seven out of ten film. Yeah, objectively speaking. Yeah, it, it, I, I, I just didn't work for me. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I need to watch it again as well. I feel like sometimes I wasn't good enough for the film. I just. <laughs> it, no, I do. I do. Honestly, it's so sophisticated that, I, like, I think it's I'm amazing that it's done so well because to me, it's the most impenetrable of his films. Yeah. I, I find mm-hmm. it really, I find it really difficult to keep up with whatever sophisticated philosophy and analogy is going on in there. So, I, I, the fact it's made hundreds of millions, basically, it's that's like a, it's a huge, huge hit. So, wow. uh, that's really cool. So, Jamie, what did you enjoy that was more your level? Uh, well, I did. I did actually enjoy another. Uh, animation i really loved uh game of the toro's uh, pinocchio which i slept on completely last year i think it came around about christmas time last mm-hmm. year i i just didn't watch it i just assumed it was going to be kind of like sub you know just like it has kids film but it's, it was so good i was like so impressed it's um yeah it, it's actually kind of quite interesting to watch with with quite close to poor things because it is basically about the joy of life and living and it's like really beautiful and it's obviously anti-fascist as well i didn't realize it was going to lean so heavily into that i didn't realize it was set um during certain Mussolini's reign um so lots of stuff going on it it can adapts and it's also a really interesting one to talk about adaptation because it adapts the story uh, really well as well so yeah that was that was a cracking and if you like me you slept on it i would uh, highly recommend uh, watching it I interviewed Guillermo del Toro at Los LFF for that. And he was like, yeah, the whole point of it is that um, he's really annoying and everyone thinks he's really annoying. They keep telling him to shut up, but that's like fascism. That's like the analogy of fascism. And I was like, yeah, but the thing is, he is actually really annoying (laughs) (laughs) and he should shut up. (laughs) And a film has never made me feel more fascist. So when I was like, Capito, someone needs to put that thing in a wood chipper. Yeah, I like Matoko. I thought he was cool. Oh, he was so annoying. I thought he was like going against everything everybody says. He was just irritating. (laughs) (laughs) But I tell you what, what put me over the line that film has got a, such a cheat ending because I don't want to spoil it but it has like a happy ending which makes you cry then it has a triple punch of sadness and when that little monkey Spazazio whatever his name was died <laughs> what was his name? The Cape Blanchett monkey the, 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 oh, right, sorry Cape Blanchett what's, what's, <laughs> what's, what's the monkey I didn't know the monkey's name yeah, and, I it, can't and, remember. It, and when it and when the monkey goes oh my god I was in a ball of tears Aww. I love that little monkey <laughs> I also found the monkey quite annoying oh god <laughs> Is that what you told Del, told Del Toro? <laughs> no, I was like, oh my God, babe, what a great analogy. <laughs> well, 
Let's hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> yeah. He is yeah. in Scotland, actually, so maybe this he can catch oh, it on yeah, the airways. Maybe. <laughs> he is, he's making Frankenstein here. Yeah, with your boy, the tall boy. Big boy. With my boy? I don't <laughs> with know. Big Boy. <laughs> Jacob Maloney. <He's> oh, Jacob Maloney. <laughs> <laughs> Guillermo del Toro's in Scotland with Big Boy. Who knows what they're up to? Um, Anahi, did you watch anything particularly um, of note or being good? Yeah, so I was just going through my diary. Um, I also watched The Boy and the Heron, Fucked. Watched Theatre Camp, You're Right, it's so good. It's great. It was like so charming. I watched Mermaids for the first time, that was lovely. I watched Stop Making Sense, which I really hate it when you're right, but like you are both right. It was like a masterpiece. You're welcome. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that was incredible. Um, I showed someone I was on a date with, Shiver Baby. <laughs> and then when I left the date, he texted me and was like, why haven't we kissed yet? <laughs> <laughs> Which I think was the most Shiver Baby things ever. It was so embarrassing for me. Um, but Shiver Baby was great. He said he really liked it. So that's a win. Um, yeah. And I watched a lot of House and a lot of New Girl. Nice. That was sounds, it sounds journey. like a very busy Christmas <laughs> yeah. break. <laughs> also, can I just say Shiver Baby is a terrible date movie, is it Why? not? Why? Because it's like basically about like how... like. Dating's terrible and Dating like people, is terrible, Jamie. people are horrible to each other. They are horrible to each other. <laughs> Jamie, it's only when we confront the things that we dislike and fear the most that we can truly challenge them. Truly. And also it's eighty minutes long. Okay, that's, that's which true. helps. Yeah. 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 Plus it's kind of arty and independent. Yeah, I think so. It when you watch it, you're cool. like, I look cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually think that was a yeah. great choice. It was just everything else. Can <laughs> I interest you in this film? <laughs> um Again, audio, people missed the hand gesture, but there you go. I watched, probably the best or most interesting thing I watched over the Christmas break was something from Mubi's Shaw Brothers, like uh, Hong Kong martial arts retrospective. The 36th Chamber of Shaolin, everyone knows the 36th Chambers from off of the Wu-Tang Clan. But this really interesting, like, so this kind of batch of films that they've got on Mubi are kind of Hong Kong B-movies where there's loads of crazy fighting, really paper-thin premises, lots of feuding factions era China uh, but yeah this one 36th Chamber of Shaolin it's about a guy who is on the run from the governor so he has to go and find some Shaolin monks who can take him to the various chambers of learning Shaolin Kung Fu there's lots of references to the wrist chamber which in a pure way is incredibly funny <laughs> the action the hand-to-hand action is amazing uh, it's really got a good pace to it and it's really funny uh, and like really good script work and stuff. Uh, there's lots of these films on Mubi just now, including a film about a man who is a professional boxer who has both of his hands broken by the mob, but then he develops sort of like kind of kung fu superpowers and that was a fighting tournament. All your classic, if you like to see men punching other men, and let's face it, who doesn't? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's loads of these films on Mubi just now. Um, and also I watched Back to the Future with someone who'd never watched it before and they were shocked and appalled by the incest <laughs> subplot. <laughs> As they put it, it's one thing for there to be incest in this family film, but it's the fact she seems so up for it that yeah. is the really yeah. appalling <laughs> element of the film. Like if she wasn't so kind of like, oh, Marty, it's like, get up. You, like, I know that the characters don't know what's going on, but I know what's going on. It's making me feel very unsettled. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, when she eventually gives birth to her child and then the child grows up, isn't she like, hmm, kind of like... The dad as well would be like, it's that fucking guy from school. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also pure narcissism. Like, you look a bit like me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's like how people always date people that look like their siblings. Yeah. Yeah. Or like how little old ladies walk with the same gait as their dogs. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> what a segue. So we've covered a few things so far that all kind of lead into poor, th you could argue all lead into poor thing. How? Make that argument. No. <laughs> so we'll just, we'll jump straight from, we'll do an awkward transition from one bit to the next and talk about after we've all been sitting in our houses watching old films, one of the biggest, most anticipated of this kind of film that we talk about on the podcast, films for this year, which is Poor Things. So a young woman is retrieved from a river by an experimental surgeon. The brain of our unborn baby is removed and placed inside her reanimated body. And the result is Bella Baxter, who is a woman who we follow growing into her mind and body at an accelerated and you could say unpredictable rate. Uh, soon enough, she's snatched away by a cat with a mustache and goes off on a voyage of discovery around a kind of like very nicely designed steampunk-esque world. So this is based on the Alistair Gray novel, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos off of The Lobster and The Favourite and so on and so forth. Uh, Emma Stone is Bella Baxter. Willem Dafoe is the aforementioned weirdo scientist. Godwin Baxter. Mark Ruffalo is the aforementioned cad. Duncan Weatherburn. Uh, Rami Youssef. Gerard Carmichael, Christopher Abbott are also in it, as is uh, Margaret Qualley, and someone else whose name I've forgotten. So it's a classic Yorgos Lanthimos, big cast, exciting premise, and a heat. You were one of the first of us to see it. Yeah, I saw and, it, Venice. And came back and told us all it was really good. Yeah. And then we were like, good. cool, we can't see it for another four months. <laughs> <laughs> is it fun for you when Cheers, I do pal. that? You know what, it is what it is. <laughs> Yeah, I saw it at Venice and it was really nice actually, the kind of atmosphere of it. Because um, as you all know, film critics are the most annoying people alive. And so often being in a film critic audience is really obnoxious and difficult. But they were just like laughing, like howling in the aisles. Like it was really, really lovely. And I think that actually contributes. I, I really want to see this again. I haven't seen it since September. I really love it. I don't think I am on the this is the best film ever. I don't even think it's his best film ever. So I do want to kind of see it again to figure out how I feel not in that, like, you know, this is its premiere in the world. It's not coming out for several months. But I think the politics of this film is really, really interesting. And that's, I think, the thing that I will, like, stand by as a work. So, yeah, you have this, like, woman who has had this, like, brain implanted into her body. And so she essentially has, like, no shame. She has no shame, no socialization. She is operating entirely on a pleasure principle, on a curiosity principle. And I think as a work about female desire beyond shame, it's so interesting because there is no, that just doesn't exist in real life. Like, even if you have someone who is resisting all of kind of the frameworks of like shame and whatever that we've put on it, they're still operating in resistance to that. Whereas for her, she just like spits out food when she doesn't want it. And she like fucks whoever she wants. And she just doesn't understand that that is a thing that she should not feel good about. And I think that like as a kind of what the fantasy is doing in that way is probably like the most compelling part of the film for me. It's also a really subversive take on the coming of age narrative and that you have like this entire life that's lived out, but it's like lived in this body and like this really compressed time. And so it's a lot about what it means to come of age, what it means to educate yourself in the same body, what it means to go through change when you're unchangeable. There's this one bit on the boat where they're reading, um, I think the Sorrows of Young Theater, which is like the first like Bildungsroman. Um, and so that's like a really interesting parallel in terms of what it's doing with that genre. It's very visually gorgeous. There are bits that I think are a bit too fantasy-ish and that remind me of um, a film that I've never actually seen, but always is to me the iconic, this kind of thing done badly, which is that Wizard of Oz adaptation that had Zach Braff's voice as a monkey. Do we know what that was? 
uh, Return to Oz. Is it the one with James no. Franco? Yes. What is that called? Oz the Great and Magnificent yeah. or something. Mm. The Great and Powerful. The Great and Powerful. Yeah. So like I've only seen the trailer of that, but there's something about like the visual language of that that is just quite like tacky to me. And there were a couple of points in this where it just felt like it could have just done with a little bit more subtlety. And I appreciate how unsubtle the film is as a rule. I think that is its politics, but it just felt a bit too much. Um, I also don't care, and I imagine we will talk about this briefly, I personally don't care about the Scotland thing, and I don't think anyone should. So that's my position on that. As the non-Scottish person. As the non-Scottish person. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's, that's interesting. The, that's, the, that's, that's the sarve, Jamie. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I t- totally agree. It's a, it's a laugh out loud romp but does have sort of these astute things like as I think was saying to say about the human condition, what is to be alive, to have a body, to have desires that go against uh, society's ideas of right and wrong and all that. That was all great. On a technical level, jaw dropping, I think the costume design, the production design is all stunning. Uh, it, it, it like The interesting thing is it, it gives each section its own kind of feel as well so it goes from this kind of black and white world um in the kind of laboratories of london which is all kind of shot through a fisheye lens and then it has this kind of one uh, wonderful kind of wizard of Oz moment where it changes from black and white um yeah. to color and i don't want to change what causes the change <laughs> but uh, it, it's very funny and 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 then and then she goes on this kind of journey well she's going on a journey of self-discovery but also a literal journey through different cities so we see these kind of like lagomoth is uh, uh <coughs> His, his imagined version of Lisbon. So it looks a little bit like, like Lisbon, but it's this kind of like steampunk mm. future retro version where there's like cars flying through the sky and, uh, you know, the colours are incredibly saturated. It's all kind of yellow. And then they go to Alexandria where it's this kind of like grotesque tower in the sky where everyone downstairs is down on the ground is poor and, and, and poverty. And then you go to Paris again, which is kind of blue tones. So it's, it's, that's all amazing. And then Emma Stone, I think, is is the real star. You know, she's just like so good. I've, I've always liked her as an actor, but I've never, I guess, appreciated her quite. I've never appreciated how good a physical actor she is. You know, uh, the film is it's that kind of film where it's you see her whole body all the time, actually, because of the fisheye lenses, partly. So you're seeing the whole. It's to show off the whole uh, production design, but it's also to show off her performance mm-hmm. because it's a head to toe performance of what it's like to have a child's kind of disposition in a human body and she it's, it's quite a hard thing to imagine what it would look like but i think it's what she does like as soon as i see her do it oh yeah that's what a baby would look like if it had a human yeah, body yeah, yeah. there's a moment where she has to get up off the floor and i was just cracking up because that is exactly what a baby looks like but when it's a human doing it it's all elbows and knees i love knees. that you keep saying human <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I clocked human. that earlier i didn't want to say anything <laughs> <laughs> adult um, and what kind of adult <laughs> I haven't seen I would say it's like to re- remind me a little bit of like Terry Gilliam or like mm. Wes Anderson and that kind of like really imaginative freewheeling um, you know design and, 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 and sort of like use of like colour and costume I, yeah I, I totally agree I think that the set dressing is just immense and, and it can feel quite Wes Anderson it can feel really really artificial it's trying to be but it's just so vivid and and, and you know painted with such broad strokes even the little intertitles which themselves are only like a frame long that say across the screen like Paris or whatever and she's just floating through the dark yeah. on the back of an anglerfish or something like that like yeah. it's just full of like tone and and life and I think that there's definitely points where we 
spend too little time in one place, but there's never a point where we spend too long in a place. Like I, I could just be on that boat for ages. Like it's just so fun to move around within it. But I do think that like, you know, it's not, it, it, it's not to say that the film couldn't do with a little stretching out. Like there's a bit sort of at the very third act where we see a little bit into the life of the person before Bella Baxter. And that feels a little rushed. It does feel like a little crammed in at the end there. Or um, even though it turns out to be quite a like pivotal moment in her development, there is a scene where a sort of her traveling companion, who's a self-proclaimed cynic, shows her how terrible the world really is. And they just essentially look off the balcony at a pit full of dying poor people. And that's like for how important it is in her development and how prolonged her like panic attack is in response to that, that feels like very object. Like that feels like we're not really interacting with the world itself in the same way that we we maybe are in like the Paris or Lisbon situation. But I mean, I'm, I, I've not read Poor Things um, and I'd really like to know that I've seen the film, but yeah, I'm not a lot, I'm not like at all surprised to hear how some of its more discursive ideas are explored more broadly. It's stuff about socialism is apparently like a little more developed in the book and it's you've, you're right there's the Scottish nationalist angle that doesn't really show up in the film and that you, that actually makes total sense to me like I would have assumed that a book which is made up of words and paragraphs and pages can get into the discursive nitty gritty a little bit more than the film which instead is there to be this like really wonderful sort of vista into the ideas of the book um, but the performances were also great uh Really loved Emma Stone. You're right. Her physicality is just so fascinating. I love. I mean, I think everyone's great. Weirdly, like I think that there's there's no non freaks in this film, right? There's some really really horrible freaks. There's some absolute psychos, but there's also some fucking nut jobs who've got like a heart of gold, and you you really learn to love them. Like Willem Dafoe is great. He's attempting a Scottish accent, so about eighty percent of the time he sounds like Willem Dafoe, and then twenty percent <laughs> of the time he sounds like my granny. Like it's just great. Whereas on the other hand, you've got. Mark Ruffalo, who, there's no polite way of putting it, right? He's a pretty Nazi character. And it's like, that's, you really don't want to be like binding your image to this really like horrible cad, but he almost knows exactly what to do with it. He plays him like such a fucking bastard. And then like his entire life explodes and he's left as a wasteland of a human being and just a really like despondent crybaby. Well, as someone who, he, the reason he's attracted to Bella is because she's this innocent, this, this mm -hmm. he, he, the fact that she has a baby, like a woman with a baby's brain is why he's attracted. But mm. as soon as she starts to be cognizant of like the, the, like her uh, sexuality and the the fact there's other men out there, he becomes this kind of whimpering yeah. baby yeah. man. It's, it's she, she, <laughs> she overtakes him because he's stupid. Like the yeah. film very quickly lets you know how this guy's kind of worthless. Like he's not intelligent and he, he can very easily be outsmarted by someone who is in theory, like has much less cognition than he does. And that's, you know, the real the real heart of the story is this like you write this sort of a human aspect where you can view the world in a totally different way than anybody else and even though people swoop in and tell you like oh i'm like you i view the world in a different way they can they can be bullshitting and like you'll very quickly work that out so yeah really really enjoyable film really fun characters really like beautiful set pieces yeah and it's got all the kind of usual yorgos lanthimos stuff like people suddenly being punched in the face out of nowhere. <laughs> we, like you said, fisheye lenses, weird kind of visual trickery. Everyone's at a kind of heightened clip and screaming at each other. It's very kind of, it feels to me very kind of exploratory, a lot more colorful than some of his other stuff. It always feels like it's going somewhere. And I want to give a special shout out to Emma Stone's vocal 
range and delivery because like the physicality is really like the physicality is really interesting and it works for like humor and story development but the way that she she delivers the lines especially in the early stages when her character is trying to like come to grips with language she delivers them in that perfect way where it's like it's just coming through an earpiece and then you just say whatever it is but the intonation's kind of all over the shop yeah, yeah. which is just like it's a really really funny thing to like you can deliver kind of like babyish slightly nonsensical gibberish and have it make perfect sense for the story and be really funny and move the plot along and great eyebrows as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to say briefly on Glasgow I, I agree that I mean actually I don't really care that he, <laughs> he, he, he didn't go into the exactly. <laughs> he didn't go into the um, you know the Scottish National stuff what, what was slightly disappointing was just the fact that it could have been Glasgow like there's no reason it has to be London and I would have loved to have you know, the same way that I loved to see his vision of Lisbon and his vision of Paris. I would love to see his vision of Glasgow as this kind of like industrial city. Yeah. I could that could have been really interesting. And it's, it's the fact that you know Glasgow's very rarely on screen. You know, I think that's probably why people have gotten a little bit disappointed. Just seeing Glasgow on screen and seeing a really great director's vision of Glasgow mm. on screen, I think would have been fascinating. And to see, especially from this director, you know, from Greece, who, who's made films all over. How did how would he imagine that city to look visually? And and this obviously this technical team who have done such a great job and you know envisioning all these other great cities. I would love to have seen you know Glasgow as a metropolis, you know steampunked to hell. How would yeah. it look? It would look cool. I think. I mean, I would also like that. I just wonder if that choice, and I don't know. That's very speculative. But I wonder if that choice was less than creative and more logistical. That if you're not digging into the Scottish thing maybe it was actually easier just to film in London. Maybe there's more infrastructure there. There were also two well, big films filming in Glasgow yeah. recently. Well, it was, it was filmed, I mean, it's all on a set. I think everything's right, on a right. set. So it was all filmed uh, in London. Okay. So like, but what I'm saying, he could have created a set yeah. that looks yeah, a bit yeah, like yeah. London. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Looks yeah. a bit Glasgow, sorry. Yeah. yeah. But that was my one gripe. I've, I've also had a lot of people complaining about the sexual politics of the film, I think a lot. Of, I think it's the kind of knee-jerk reaction when they see that it's you know written by a man, mm. based on a book by a man, um, you know directed by a man. They they assume that, that like all the the ideas of uh, female sexuality are, are going to be kind of gross and crass. And actually, I I, I don't see that at no. all. You know, I think it's actually a really sophisticated. Um, it's the best part of the film. Yeah, yeah. I would mm-hmm. say actually, yeah. and it is also unquestionably a film about men literally objectifying women mm-hmm. because mm. it's about them create creating from scratch a woman who is to be the object of their desires interests personal development professional development and it doesn't the film doesn't say that that's good and cool yeah like mm-hmm. the amount of time like because this is a thing that comes up whenever you get into it these kind of areas with films that aren't incredibly obvious with what they're doing it's like you do realize that some of these characters are bastards who you're not supposed to like or agree with yeah some of these characters are bastards. You're not supposed to like or agree with them. Feel free to clip that. Use it wherever you want. I think it's also just the, like the lack of moralizing. I think people have objected to, you know, because obviously she goes in this kind of sexual journey that ranges from like, you know, learning about masturbation and want to do it all the time to want to have sex with different men to eventually becoming a, a prostitute in France. Uh, and people are saying, well, that's oh, that's terrible to like, glam-. but it's not glamorized. It's like somebody who's literally want to learn what the world is like. Yeah. And it's like like approaching all these aspects of sexuality with no judgment, with no morality, mm-hmm. because they haven't been taught it. And, yeah, and, I mean, I, and I've, she's reading Marxist philosophy while she's being a sex worker. Yeah. Precisely. I've, actually, I've seen people complain about the fact that the, the film's definition of feminism is just that she like, just 
doesn't care about the way men are exploiting her and it's like I think I think that's very interesting because unfortunately the patriarchy is is an omnipresent thing right and it all because it's so intertwined with capitalism it always involves a level of yeah. exploitation and it's just an interesting idea that this woman is just letting people exploit her as if she's not getting anything out of the experiences herself mm. because she's becoming a, a more like learned and experienced person and that's really all the value that she has is her ability to understand the world better. But she also says, she literally says, this is bullshit, actually, I should get to pick the men I want to yeah. have sex with. Yeah, it's, it's a nuanced idea of sex work because obviously not every sex worker has the privilege to select their clients or communicate with their clients in the way that she yeah. does. But at the same time, like... Yeah. Which she also discovers because that's basically the, you know, the person who runs the brothel. Yeah says well this is capitalism honey this is you know if you yeah. if you want to survive this is unfortunately as a woman in, in this time this is how we make money and again that seems like the kind of thing that the novel might be able to get into in like a better again I've not read the novel maybe I'm wrong but like yeah. it seems like the kind of thing that I would have assumed the novel does in a lot more yeah. and detail. especially where the film ends I don't want to spoil how the film ends but I think the final like minute of the film is just glorious it's just mm -hmm. like I, yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but it's just made me smile. And like <laughs> uh, Emma Stone, who has reached her full womanhood and she's just the master of her destiny. And it's just wonderful to watch. Yeah. And someone who's involved in that final scene really does get to do the, what are you going to do? Stab me meme. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Poor Things is out now and it's going pretty great by all accounts. So it'll still be on for a while yet. Yeah, I went and saw it at the Cameo last night and it was hoaching. I believe that... Ellie, you went and saw the GFT yesterday afternoon. Yesterday afternoon, and it was pretty busy. It was pretty busy. It was pretty busy. It was in the middle of the day, so yeah. I'm going to say that's good. If, if a film is pretty busy in the middle of a Monday, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. not bad. Um, so yeah, it's currently on general release just now. 35 mil showings at the GFT and Cameo, or just in regular old digital projection for everyone else. Um, and also, there's a bunch of Yorgos Lanthimos films, including Killing of a Sacred Deer and The Lobster, that are on the Channel Four on demand thing just now. So if people haven't seen them yet, you can watch them for free as long as you put up with the occasional advert. Mm -hmm. But then, I mean, we work at a print magazine, so we can't be complaining about adverts too much. We also put up with the occasional adverts. Yeah, we know, <laughs> we know what side our bread's bar. <laughs> okay, second film of the week is All of Us Strangers. So... Adam, played by Andrew Scott, is a screenwriter who lives alone in a London tower block when two kind of interlocking, interesting, strange things start happening to him. One of them is that he strikes up a new relationship with his neighbour Harry, who's played by Paul Mescal, and the second one is that he revisits his childhood home and finds his parents, who had died many years ago, living just as they were three decades in the past, and the film is about how these two things are happening to our boy Moriarty. Uh, it's the... <laughs> Um, it's, the, it's the new film from Andrew Hay, who did Weekend, and what was the other film he did recently? Did Forty Five Years. He did Looking on TV. Um, he did uh, what's that? Uh, the, the, the kid in the horse one, Pete something. Pete Lean on me. Pete Lean on Pete Lean on me. Lean on Pete. Lean on Pete. That's the one. My yeah. brain went to Pete the Dragon. <laughs> he made Pete Sorry. the Dragon. It's uh, not the person to ask. <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, so this is All of Us Strangers, and again, another one of these ones that's been doing the rounds at film festivals and people have been saying, oh, that'll be really good, and then looking and saying, oh, it's not out until the end of January. Mm -hmm. So, it's here, it's with us now. Jamie. No, it's what, not. It's nearly here <laughs> with us now. You've all seen it. <laughs> I haven't, I was on holiday. Jamie, what did you think of All of Us Strangers? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big Andrew Hay fan, and... Uh, I know, that's why I came to you first. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is one of the kind of great recent films about grief I've seen, I think. Um, you know, it's just so warm, it's open, it's emotional, its emotions are really raw. If you describe the premise, it sounds kind of goofy, actually. The, the premise, it sounds very different from a typical Andrew Hay film because um, it, it has this kind of magic, realist element. Um, you know, it's, but actually, if you, if you look beyond that, I, I think it is kind of quite reminiscent from things like Weekend and 45 Years because it's about a character who seems very kind of calm and placid on the surface but underneath he's just this kind of bundle of emotions so Andrew Scott I think is, is really good as this kind of writer um, he's living in this kind of London flat that's kind of empty it's a very kind of eerie vision of London um, it's like you know he, it's, a, it's a very kind of lonely vision of London as well um, and he's writing the story about his parents then you know like you say eventually he inexplicably goes back to their house um, and at first I like how it's it's not clear exactly what's happening at first you think he's actually getting picked up by a man in the park he meets this man in the park with a moustache mm-hmm. he looks at him funny and he kind of like gives him a nod and he just follows him back to this house and you think okay this is just some sort of yeah. gay pickup but really subversive it turns out to be his father who's played by Jamie Bell who's really good as well and yeah, it's, it's, it, I found it a really emotional film. The, it's the, the idea, it reminded a little bit of Celine Siama's film recently, Pity Mama. That was about a girl who meets her parent, her mother at the same age. This is about an adult who meets their, their parents at the same age, but also the parents have actually died um, when he was a child as well. So it's, 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 it's a film about grief, but it's also very much a film about, you know, being a gay man and growing up in the 80s as well. And so in that way, it reminded me a lot of Terence Davies' films as well. It's, so it's yeah. a film about, it's a kind of memory piece. It's about being gay. Um, and, and the kind of trauma of that, actually, it's like, it's about growing up in the late 80s when there was kind of ro- no roadmap to be a, a young gay man. You know, you had like these dystopian uh, adverts about AIDS on TV. You had Section 28. Um, but then you also have, on top of the pops, you have... Uh, you know the Pet Shop Boys and Erasure and all these kind of gay icons um, so the, the, the film also uses that, that kind of music from that era in a really interesting way and it f- kind of feeds through the film and kind of speaks to the film so yeah the film is doing a lot of things uh, I, I, I thought it was really fantastic I haven't really seen a British film that kind of like delves into the magic realism that way. It actually also reminds me of Corrida's early films, yeah. like Afterlife. Yeah, so it's like, it's kind of, the, the way it deals with like grief and the, the kind of ghosts of your past is very kind of literal and, and, and open and on its face. And it's not like a supernatural film at all, strangely. Um, so, but I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, I also really, really loved it. I saw it in London. I haven't seen it recently, but I can't wait to. It is so sad. Like sadder than After Sun. I think in a more like direct way almost like the tragedy is really really overt and I can understand that some people that that maybe feels a bit too much or it feels like a little bit manipulative um and that's not even like when people didn't like after sun I was like you're insane (laughs) when people don't like this film I can kind of get it but for me it just like hit all of those parts of myself that have experienced like grief and loss and like romantic and queer alienation and it just felt so real like it felt like a kind of legible part of yourself on film I agree that the magical realism element is done so well in that it kind of taps into the most honest version of grief, I think, um, which is like denial, really, like that kind of sense of you just refuse what's happening um, and you refuse the reality. I think you guys know this, um, but my, not to get too too real and deep, uh, but my best friend died in a car accident when we were 21. And I remember like in the weeks after I was talking to my older brother about it and I was obviously like, not okay 
And he said that like one of the things that happens with death um, is that you just can't process it because you as a person can't accept your own mortality. Because if you do, then you just wouldn't ever leave the house. Like you live in constant denial of your own mortality and that's what allows you to like live and leave the house and get in a car and make connections and like kind of constantly be risking your life. And I think then grief means that you just have to deny it in a way because it's the only way that you can kind of keep going. And I think this is like one of the best depictions of that that I've ever seen. It like really hit me. Um, it's formalistically really beautiful as well. Like this kind of idea of the high rise and like there's this red sky outside it all the time. And it's like very J.G. Ballard actually, it reminded me a lot of high rise. Um, and just that idea of like alienation grief as like a dystopian landscape, I thought was really, really compelling. The, the use of music is really, really good. And I was just so surprised by it. Like I haven't, I've seen 45 years and Weekend and they are such different films to this. I just was not expecting something that worked with genre in such a way that still felt so true to who Andrew Hager's. Like it was so deft and so clever. Um, and I, I just really, I really loved it. It was the first film I saw last year that I was like, oh my God, cinema's back. <laughs> it was so nice. There's, there was so much, uh, like I was really looking forward to this film and there was so much about it while watching it that really like captured me and that I really enjoyed. The performances are obviously one of them, but um, like you say, Jamie, like a lot of the, like the sound design and how music is used to sort of bring these two worlds together. But I do think that I'm one of these people that you were describing, mm. Anahi, who didn't really click with, I think the script and, and, and some of the decisions that it made it sort of felt like it was stepping on its own toes. It sort of felt like it didn't really know what narrative devices to use or where to take this quite fickle, magical realism aspect away. Um, we obviously can't talk about, or we don't talk about spoilers in, in, in this. Um, so I just won't talk about the last 20 minutes of the film. I really love this film. Uh, you know, I think that I, I really liked that... Um, it says a lot about love and healing and how they are virtually the same thing and healing or, or being open with people about the traumas that you've faced is tantamount to being more in love with the people around you and similarly how loving very openly and just facing the outer world with the things that you love is a healing aspect. I like that the, the there's a real... The, the, the magic like the, the the distance in time between the past the memories that we live in and what's happening in in the present day aren't just that they're also a commentary on like the history of the queer community and how they talk about how you know queer and gay are two terms that have been used interchangeably over the past couple decades and how they've shifted in meaning or also how the the reaction to gay existence only a few decades ago was one that was much more preoccupied with death and loneliness mm -hmm. and how things have changed. Um, and, and the fact that now the 1980s are very, very fashionable and they're particularly fashionable in the gay community to like draw a line and say like there are some real philosophical differences between this time and that. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, I, I, I don't think that the supernatural element was very tropey. I don't think that it was consistently used, but I think that it could also really believably be this sort of thought experiment of a writer who'd had this trauma and was living in his own memories and just that device being used to facilitate these really wonderful healing dialogues, uh, which again are like upheld by these 
phenomenal performances. Like no matter what, no matter what, whether or not I disagree with the script, I would just watch Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott talk forever. I, I would, I mean, if, if it meant I got to cathartically cry in Paul Mescal's arms at the end, I would take him in a nightclub bathroom. Uh, so yeah, like I, I, I had a much more like mixed reaction and it's quite sudden turns I didn't really agree with. I only watched it last night. So maybe as time will pass, I'll like acclimatize to the ideas a bit more, but I really liked one of the films that it was and felt like mm. it, it didn't really become that film. Yeah. Do you know what it actually reminds me of, the reaction to it, is um, Hanya Yanagihara's A Little Life. Mm. Um, and to be clear, I fucking hate that book. Yeah. Like, I think it's awful. And I think I feel it's awful in a way that some people don't like this film in how it kind of tackles queer trauma. Um, but I think it has that same polarizing effect. And I don't think if you like that one, you necessarily like this one or vice versa. But I haven't seen anything polarize people to such an extent since that, which I think is a bad, bad book. <laughs> but then people will die for that book. Like they go to bat for it. And for them, it feels very honest. And yeah, maybe that's just, maybe that is actually what good art is. Is it just, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like this is with the book is like, the book is cause, cause, cause just taking in a book is a bit slower. Mm. I got more angry with the book and I was like throwing it, I was yeah. constantly just throwing it away because I was yeah. like, yeah, so, don't be <laughs> but I think because the film was in such a kind of heightened emotional state already mm. when the, the thing you're talking about happens, I, I, I was just, in, instead I was in such an emotional state, I couldn't actually think of actually, is this a cruel thing to do or is this a yeah. bad thing to do to the audience? So I think in retrospect, actually, you, I could see how people could have that perception because I was watching it in such a state of, uh, high emotion anyway I think I just fell yeah. apart it already got you by that yeah. Yeah, like, the presentation is fantastic yeah. and the way that this sort of questionable moment happens in the film is wonderful you put Paul Mescal at the end of a film 80s needle drop after sun all over again oh everyone will love it yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I also agree like uh, I've, I've talked a little bit about the grief part but I think that it's also one of the great kind of queer relationships on screen as well and I think uh, I, I noticed that Twitter hasn't came after yet because Twitter loves to go against like age differences in films I don't know what the age difference mm. between but the, the is uh, between Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott is, but the whole point of uh, is they're a roughly a generation apart and they grew up in completely different times. So, like I say, Andrew Scott's character Adam grew up when being gay was a scary thing to to do to contemplate because it meant loneliness, it meant death. Mm -hmm. Whereas Paul Mescal's in the tunnel of millennium, you know, kind of like when it was it's queer and it's it's a different thing. And they have a great conversation about queerness and like what does he says? Oh, it's as if all the kids today have taken the cock sucking out of it. Or yeah, something like that. <laughs> it's like, it's too polite a term. But you know, what I mean? it's like it's like a it's a, just a really interesting conversation that you never mm -hmm. see in films. So it's like mm -hmm. I thought that was a really cool to see that uh, explored um, in this kind of movie, which is also really romantic and mm -hmm. sweet. And it's it, and like it's not sexy in that it's so sad. It's too sad to be consistently sexy. Yeah. But the sex scene between them, oh yeah, is Very so sexy. so sexy and like incredibly, um, like gay, I guess. <laughs> but like in a way that it reminds me of like some of the critiques that people made of Call Me by Your Name, where they were like the book is filled with like viscera and it's just been like sanitized out of the film version and this does not sanitize uh like fluids <laughs> at all and i love that about it yeah. i think it's so good well there's a lot of nuance and uh, <laughs> an appropriate detail that's going to be misinterpreted by idiots on the internet for weeks to come so all of us strangers is out next friday 26th of january uh, in all the usual places because thanks to various corporate machinations this is a Disney film yeah so, which is just hilarious which is, my mind because I think Poor Things is also a Disney film 
They're both released by Disney. They're both and the Searchlight, which is part uh, of Fox. And I think they're both 18. That's funny. Which is which is weird. So yeah, that's the hilarious. mouse is back. The mouse is back. <laughs> the year that he goes out of copyright. Yeah, the, the mouse. <laughs> yeah. The mouse has moved out of copyright and into the cinema. Yeah. <laughs> um, we didn't do star ratings. Well, we're oh, gonna, no, we we're going to do yeah. those at the end. Okay. Oh, at okay. the very do end the of the review section. I uh, would do them at the end of the end. Okay. As like we've got a letterbox. Here's what we're. Is this why people hang around? Yeah. To, uh, yeah. Better get to the end of this so we can get the star ratings. <laughs> Okay, and then for a bit of rounding off fun at the end, we have been talking today about a couple of films that are adapted to one extent or another from books. So we thought today's category, best adaptation of a weird book slash best weird movie adapted from a book. It's very loose. It's very open. You can do a lot with it. Uh, So we've each thought of one that we can recommend. Uh, Jamie, I believe you're going to go first because your one actually is linked to another of these best films of 2024 brackets pending because of who directed the film that you're about to talk about. Oh yeah, so I'm going to talk about uh, Under the Skin. Uh, Hopefully in a couple of weeks we might be talking about um, Jonathan Glazer's new film, uh, The Zone of Interest, but this is his most recent film. Um, And I think if I was going to teach a class on the difference between literature and cinema, I'd teach Under the Skin because both are fantastic, both are masterpieces, but they they, they approach um, the roughly the same premise and, you know, roughly the same tone in completely different ways. Um, so Michelle F- uh, Faber's book um, is about an alien who's who's abducting men, um, but she's a, a really pitiful character. Um, she's, you know, she's had all this painful surgery done to her to make her look like a human. You know, she's had like her leg, I think I, I can't remember if her leg stretched or shortened. Her back is sore because she has these massive breasts to attract men. And th- the book is very funny because actually, clearly they've not been successful. The way she describes herself is quite grotesque. You know, she, uh, she describes putting on makeup and stuff like that. And you can tell maybe they've not done the best job. And then we, you know, it's, uh, we, we see how men react to her. Uh, and she's always a bit frustrated because her seduction has never worked. So she just has to like knock them out anyway. <laughs> so like, so, so it's like, uh, so that's a very different approach to uh, Jonathan Glazer who goes the complete opposite way. He picks Scarlett Johansson, who's this kind of like ethereally beautiful person who is an alien. You know, she looks, looks not, when she's walking around Glasgow, she does not look like the average human being. And that's his approach. Um, and it's where she takes pity on the humans, these kind of pitiful creatures. So, so it's just, it's taking a, a completely different angle, but giving exactly the same tone this kind of otherworldly feeling um, and this this feeling of not being um, yeah just being a, a, an alien like um, and one doing it through literature and one doing it um, through cinema and, and, and choosing the opposite way to do it um, but both having the same sort of result this kind of feeling of the uncanny mm-hmm. of walking around and f- being different to everyone and kind of, kind of communicating that um, in, in very kind of different tones you know one is very funny and uh I guess sort of sympathetic and the other one is like initially quite scary and terrifying but but eventually quite sympathetic as well so yeah both both really interesting uh, takes on the same work same idea Um, Ellie what do you have for adaptations Uh, so kind of an interesting follow up to that so I wasn't really planning on talking about this initially but I watched Ghost World over last week which uh, is for anyone who doesn't know, a 2001 adaptation of a Daniel Close comic book with a young Scarlett Johansson um, and a young 
uh, Thora Birch, but not like Hocus Pocus young. She's a little older than Hocus Pocus. There are two small town high school graduates who just like nothing more than to point at anything and anyone around them and make fun of it, uh, whether that's something that's like really normal and mainstream and positive and upbeat or dumb and ugly and different. They're, they're just cunts, really. Like, it's the, it's they the, really the, are. They're, like, they're, they're scathing social commentary is like what defined the 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 comic book right the sort of that real cynicism of the 90s that that like the the american youth disillusionment that you get in series like freaks and geeks uh or i don't know whatever limp biscuits doing um uh, but they're what, breaking stuff they are breaking stuff it's just <laughs> you know everything why, you sucks know why they did it why they did it all for the nookie <laughs> what the nookie <laughs> come on <laughs> Sorry, but, I'm just doing spoken word William Shatner style with <laughs> Ellie, carry on talking about films. So what makes the adaptation of the comic book really worthwhile is the introduction of a composite character, uh, Seymour, who's original to the film, and he's played by Steve Buscemi, who's a combination of one of the, like, just the local old loser man, crank, whatever, from the comic book, and their love interest, who's also a high schooler. So Thora Birch's character, Enid Coleslaw, makes a bogus response to the most pathetic Lonely Hearts ad she can find, then deliberately stands up Buscemi and follows him home while viciously mocking him. Again, she's a cunt. But she slowly begins to, like, learn that with his... With him, like, having this collection of old records and vintage posters and him having his, like, sad little interests no one else cares about, he actually has, like, a passion for something. He has individuality. He has his own interests. And she begins to really switch up how she responds to the people in her life learning from her experiences with this guy. So it's not a perfect film. Like, the transformation that she goes through is nowhere near as transformative as it could be. But I think it's, like, a great Buscemi role. He really, really earnestly plays this socially awkward but very open-hearted guy. And, you know, this incredibly unassuming middle-aged nerd turns out to be this kind of role model for, like, a young girl who really has no idea what she wants to be in life. So, like... I think that the reason for that is because Buscemi's character is the kind of character that could never really thrive in the static panels of a comic book. Like, he plays such an emotional role. He he gives the, the film a real sensitivity, a real emotional core, that the comic book, which is more about the witty cynicisms, doesn't have. So it is interesting that... Yeah, like the book and the book uh, under the skin and the film under the skin really have to switch their tone if they want to successfully tell this story. And I do think it's kind of similar with Ghost World. Like it does seem like a very transformative effort in the way that other films we've been talking about have been. Mm. Yeah. Um, Anahit, what have you got? So I have got Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, which came out in 1999, I think. Yeah. Um, and then Arthur Schnitzler's Traumnovelle, which is a 1926 uh, Austrian novella um, that I studied at uni in second year. Um, very long time ago. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, when we were thinking of, we were thinking of like best adaptation of a weird book, but I also think it's really interesting, the adaptation that almost goes the furthest from the book in some ways. And Traumnovelle is like set in obviously like 1920s Austria. It's coming out of um, German Austrian modernism. It's a lot about, you know, people like now living in like an incredibly like fragmented world. Meaning has been fragmented. It's post World War One, um, and a lot of it is about. It follows like a lot of the same beats, which is really really interesting. Like this guy 
but him and his wife confess that they've been having fantasies about other people and then he goes out like on call and ends up in a mask shop buys a mask end up ends up in a mask orgy like it's all the kind of same beats of it but it's a lot about that kind of like freudian um like that kind of post-freud moment what is that noise <laughs> It was just like a clang. Stanley um, Cooper. <laughs> He's back. Coming in the grave. <laughs> you know what? Cinema really is back. Um, yeah, this kind of like post-Freud, um, people coming to terms or not coming to terms with the depravity of their sexual desires. So it's like really of its time in that way. Whereas Eyes Wide Shut is set in the 90s. It stars Tom Cruise <laughs> and Nicole Kidman. And I think that translation of the time period is so interesting because the 90s was a time of relative quote unquote stability. And of this kind of, you know, this yuppie, like very comfortable upper middle class person. And you still have so many of the same anxieties going through it, right? Of what does it mean to kind of have sexual freedom? What does it mean to have like your desires coming up against like a very comfortable structured middle class existence? And I just think Eyes Wide Shut is incredible like it's such a and I mean most people have seen it so it's not really like I'm not convincing anyone but it is so beautiful and so fucked up um the orgy scene is I think one of like the best scenes like ever filmed like he really goes for it Tom Cruise is probably at his best least obnoxious I miss that version of Tom Cruise that kind of scene where him and his wife talk about it and it's quite different from, from Tram Novella because they really, like this kind of real tension starts to build and this sort of hatred that he feels for her as someone that exists outside of his idea of her. Um, and she is rolling the world's strongest joint. <laughs> like they put so much weed in that joint. That I'm like, yeah, babe, obviously, obviously your evening went like that. <laughs> if I did that, my evening would go like that too. And it's just so, I don't know. It's a film that you really like feel. It's such a sensual film. I think it's incredible. And it works so well in conversation with the book as much because of like how it follows it, but also because of its differences, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I love it. Nice. And the one that I'm gonna talk about to kind of round, which actually rounds everything off fairly well, is A Cock and Bull Story, which is Michael Winterbottom directing Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan. So the kind of precursor to things like The Trip. Now Tristram Shandy, is a kind of metafictional faux biography. You talked about, you mentioned like kind of modernist. Mm. This is like pre-modernism, 1700s yeah. metafiction about a pompous ass trying and failing to tell his life story, but constantly getting in his own way, going off on weird tangents and never getting to the point. <laughs> the film is a film about Steve Coogan playing a pompous and self-important version of himself, who's trying to make a film version of the Tristram Shandy book. Uh, whilst also trying to live a Tristram Shandy-esque life of being a cad and having everyone think he's great. So it's classic like Michael Winterbottom where it's all about films with it, like wheels within wheels, films within films. Um, and there's all these scenes that are like shot bits of the Tristram Shandy tale, but then it'll cut and you'll go to behind the scenes where everyone is now, instead of playing the characters they were playing in the film, quote unquote, they're now playing the characters they're playing in the film. No quote unquote. <laughs> Uh, so it's all the things that I like, which is like people being horrible to each other, weird sniping, lots of endless layers of meta narrative and constantly unpacking cinematic Matryoshka dolls. Um, it is a bit clunky in places. It feels like the kind of film where they probably shot hours and hours of material and didn't really know what to use. But as a ending point for this kind of conversation, and as if anyone is a fan of, like I say, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon's work or Michael Winterbottom's other work, things like 24 Hour Power People and stuff like that. 
I would highly recommend A Cock and Bull Story. It's a very weird film, and much like the book it's based on is kind of a big, long, the classic Abraham Simpson thing of like, tell them long stories that don't go anywhere. <laughs> um, so Under the Skin, you can watch on Studio Canal's own streaming thing via Amazon. I believe if you just sign up for a trial, you can watch it and then cancel the trial. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut, you might just have to buy a DVD, unfortunately. Um, Worth it. Yeah, it is like that, but yeah. yeah. It's got rewatch value, if nothing else. Ghost World is on Amazon Prime, and Cock and Bill Story you can watch on Corazon's streaming platform. Those are all good films. Those are all good recommendations. We did it. We did it. First, first pod back, and the gang's having a great time. <laughs> uh, before we go, we have a letterboxed. Yay! Uh, at the Cine Skinny. Get ready for a load of arguments over that. So, for, come follow us on there. We'll be putting up... Basically, I think we're going to try and put up like a record of all of the films we review, but also like of everything that we kind of like discuss or touch on in the course of doing the podcast. Um, but one thing we are going to do is star ratings for each of the films we actually review. Now, we've all thought in our heads about what number out of five we would give these films, but we purposefully haven't told each other what they are in order to, as Jamie said, provoke a bit of drama. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I'll let you guys do all of us strangers first because I haven't seen it. I can be the independent arbiter of what star rating. I have my calculator up on the ready. <laughs> Anna has got the calculator open. <laughs> Before we came on air, we had a long discussion about whether it's, quote, easier to divide by three or to divide by four. I so, think we were on air. I think that's going in the podcast. <laughs> well, who knows what will come out in the edit? <laughs> Provided that Jamie isn't killed. <laughs> um, so, uh, Jamie... We all of us, all of us strange. Should we do them all together or should we do them? Should everyone just say into the microphone not what number well, they we think? Could, Let, let's do film. Actually, are we doing it letterbox rules where you can have half, half stars? stars? Yes. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. It might end up fucking with average. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. Right. Okay. Should we, should we just go around the table and see, or should we just all say them into the mic? Should we say them in the same time? Right. Okay. I will count, I will count you down. One. <laughs> what film are we doing first? You're doing all of us strangers. strangers. Three, two, one, then reveal. Okay. <laughs> the classic. We've been through this before. <laughs> Right, three, two, one, five. Four point five. <laughs> okay, so four and a half, five and two. Okay, hang on. Four plus two. No, yeah, plus four point five. Now that's podcasting. Divided by three, <laughs> three point eight. So four stars. Excellent. Okay. Everyone's happy with that. Okay. Well, Ellie's not, Ellie's I'm, not happy. I'm with happy. <laughs> I'm just trying to represent the people that were let down by the film. I'm happy to just. <laughs> lower yeah. the average lower the average take a little tick off it yeah um, that's realistic okay. and then poor things the biggie because we've all seen it so more drama one one third more drama than would you time. like us to all do it at the same time again <laughs> oh you know I would. <laughs> this is great for it, went, it went so it went so well last time <laughs> right on th three two one four point five <laughs> okay wait what was that so it's four <laughs> I feel like this four. format point four, may need four, some work. 4.5 and then... Five. Five. And I never give anything five stars. Wow. I like how Anahi admitted very freely at the beginning of the episode to being able to do maths well. Yeah, but and I don't want to do this kind of maths. Peter is like, you can write down a, an equation with four numbers <laughs> all at once, can't you? Um, so that is 4.375, so 4.5. Excellent. There we go. See, sometimes you've got to show your working. <laughs> it turns out our working is chaotic and you might call it a mess. <laughs> And that's it for the Series Kitty podcast. Uh, thank you to Jamie. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Thanks, Anahin. Thank you. Uh, this has been the Series Kitty. You can follow us on all the social platforms, including 
letterboxed apparently um, you can get us on email at cineskinny at skinny.co.uk we will be back in two weeks time I say we and he's going to Canada yeah so I won't be here she won't be here <laughs> but someone else might or it might just be the three of us who's yeah. to say we haven't worked out yet I don't know if you can tell we're very organised after <laughs> our long lovely holiday uh, yes yeah, so we will be back in two weeks time thanks for listening and goodbye bye bye, bye.